Welcome to the Panopticon, 2 plus 2 equals 5. This is A. William West with D50. This is our second podcast. We have two podcasts. One, the first podcast that we just recorded, it's called The Panopticon, in which we talk about theory, history, and the arts. Um, the complimentary pod, uh, podcast is The Panopticon 2 plus 2 equals 5, which is the one we are currently on, where we talk about current events. This is our introduction um, to the Panopticon 2 plus 2 equals 5. Uh, today we're going to talk about the war in Ukraine, China, and TikTok, and then any potential Trump arrest news we will talk about. Um, since this is our first 2 plus 2 equals 5 um, podcast, I want to refer you to the Panopticon podcast for any kind of detailed information on our bios, who we are, um, what we're doing here and why we decided to do this is in our first episode of the Panopticon. Um, um, again, that will be more deliberate, focused on theory, history, and the arts. Two plus two equals five is current events, but it's also more free flow, um, a little more fun, um, a little more just thoughts coming to mind, which the other podcast, the Panopticon, requires a little research and a little more thought. Um D50, do you have anything to add before we move forward? Yeah, you're you're having issues with Panopticon, aren't you? The word. No, I don't. I don't. Th I didn't th think I did. Oh, Panopticon. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. I like it. You're doing good. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I can edit all this out. No, you're not. <laughs> this day well, we can't we can't be we can't be like punching back and forth and stuff when we're trying to talk about stuff i mean if i'm really messing up then let me know hey i love you <laughs> this is good oh no emotions either oh with no emotions okay yeah i thought you said I, this was supposed to be more fun anything else dad um no i mean i this one's gonna be more conversational I guess it, it, more uh, improvised, less this uh, two plus two is going to be more, um, you know, relaxed, I guess. Where we talk about current stuff going on, just current events. All right. Well, we'll get started then. Let's start with Ukraine. What's your thoughts? <laughs> you, my thoughts on Ukraine is what i don't know what the fuck's going on so i bought this one book um called war in ukraine making sense of a senseless con conflict it's by medea benjamin and nicholas js davies it's a slim volume published by who's this publish or books and it's i like it because it's concise um short and gives you just a, a brief history of what led up to the ukraine war and um the main players behind it and i just i just started it i'm on chapter like two or something but um it's given me some uh, some insight into why uh the war was started you know the reasons and apparently so there were do you want to just get into like what led up to it just brief. Yeah, let's do it. 
So from my understanding, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the late 80s, early 90s, Ukraine became its own separate nation, right? And um, since then, the West and NATO, the U.S., has had an investment in trying to uh, get control over Ukraine. And there were various treaties and whatnot that um, that the Russia and the West uh, agreed upon. And one of those um, one of those uh, part of the policy was that the U.S. and NATO would not infringe on Ukraine. Right? Would not try to um, absorb it into the e- European Union. And so the U.S. agreed to that. Right. But then throughout the next 20 years or so, the U.S., through covert ways and through diplomatic ways, interfered with the political structure of Ukraine that would best advantage the West and and would give the NATO and the West control over Ukraine. Um, is that is that kind of how you understand it? I That's how I understand the the more recent and modern uh, description of Ukraine. Now, it, 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 course, it goes back even farther, um, even towards um, the Soviet times, more specifically um, post-1945, post-World War II with Stalin and his manipulation um, of boundaries within the Soviet empire, um, specifically, or particularly in this case, uh, the Ukraine, um, even pre world war two as, as well. So there's, it's very, now I, I have very little knowledge on kind of pre or even post world war two Ukraine, Ukraine at all. And this is kind of the, <clears throat> you know, a topic to be discussed is, I think I represent most people in the United States, at least, on their knowledge of the Ukraine. I, I have very little knowledge of the Ukraine, past or present, other than we are. it seems like we are on the brink of something bigger um, than just the Ukraine. And I, just by observation, know for sure that the you know, the regime of the United States and others, the rest of the world finds Ukraine to be very, very important, if not an existential threat towards not only the United States, but Western civilization itself. So, well, yeah, cause you've, you've, you've discussed, you know, just when we've been talking previously that um, this is kind of, a lead up to maybe a conflict with China over Taiwan or that China's watching what's going on in Ukraine and how we react, maybe the outcome as a, as a measure to decide whether or not to bring that up or to, to engage in conflict over Taiwan. Is that correct? I think it's part of it. I think it's, that is part of the bigger piece that I was talking about. My knowledge, my recent knowledge of the Russian-Ukraine um, conflict is, and this is a very simplistic 
again, some very simplistic uh, knowledge and description. From a Russian perspective, NATO encroached on its territory, basically crossed a red line with the Ukraine. From a NATO perspective, United States perspective, is Ukraine is a sovereign country, was basically mining its own business, and Russia aggressively and preemptively uh, attacked Ukraine. Again, very simplistic um, description, but there was also, you know, regime change. This is from a yeah. Russian perspective in in uh, you know the Maiden Revolution. They call it the Maiden Revolution in Ukraine a few years back. Where it's not called Maidan. It might be. I, I don't know. I well, I as I was as I was I reading the book. Yeah. Sorry, as I was reading this book, I, I was like, "Is this Maidan or Maiden?" I didn't quite because I've heard Maidan in the news. Like I think it's Maidan, but I'm not sure. It, it, it might be. I don't know. I would have to look up the pronunciation. Uh, but there was a revolution there, or a regime change there that the Russians uh, feel was instigated, not only instigated but coordinated um, by the United States. To remove and the, the Maidan democratically elected president, who so just so happened to side more with Russia than than NATO, and again, a very simplistic perspective. Yeah, and the the so as I was reading this uh, first couple chapters, this issue of the right wing neo Nazi factions within Ukraine are were. There's a, um, a group called Svoboda. I guess it means freedom. But they, the book says that they're basically made up of right wing neo Nazi uh, anti Russian factions. But from what the book's saying is that those were instigated or or used by the West to help um, cause disruptions, whether it be. Uh, violent protests, you know, they overtook the Ukrainian capital in Kiev and would cause all these disturbances um, to to uh, try to get rid of the pro-Russian leader at the time. And it ended up working from what I understand. Um, but then now that was stifled by the Minsk II agreement, I guess, in 2014. And there was relative like inactivity until recently, um, what two years ago or so, when the Ukraine war started. And then that there's these regions, right, that they're talking about the Dohens, uh, what is it called, Luhansk, in the east, which east of Ukraine, which borders the Russia. Luhansk, Donbass, Donetsk, right? Those three regions are are the ones that are being contested over right now. Is that is that how you understand it, Drew? Yes. Yep. And then where Crimea comes in, that was back in two thousand, I think fourteen, right? So Russia annexed Crimea. And the West, of course, didn't like that, but they didn't choose to do anything overtly about it. 
Hello. Drew? Yes. Yep. Um, so, so do you have anything to say about that, like, neo-Nazi aspect that they keep bringing up? Uh, no, I mean, that's, again, that's the, the current narrative that I'm tracking. Um, there's the Azov Battalion. Again, I don't know the pronunciation. That's that right. That is supposed to be, you know, basically neo-Nazis that as you described, or as this book describes that you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, was, has been u- essentially used as a tool to act as enforcers and disruptors mm-hmm. within the Ukraine. Now, again, it depends what perspective I'm using verbiage from a, you know, if you will, pro Russian perspective, it's like in Afghanistan when, you know, we were supporting the Afghanis against the Soviet Union, we call them freedom fighters. What did the Soviet Union call them? Not freedom fighters, that's for sure. Um, so, well, the you know. um, the book says that the leader of the Azov Battalion was this. He was a prisoner for many years because he was apparently super violent, and um, that he was released early from prison. And because he rallied people too, he had support. So he was released. It seemed intentionally release him, and that he could be, he became a leader of the Azov Battalion because uh, it suited the West's um, intentions. You know, to have this powerful guy up, an aggressive guy in charge of that uh, group. And uh, what's interesting too is to talk about Victoria Newland. And she was the, I think she was the U.S. ambassador or U.S. assistant secretary. And she's been a huge player in that area um, and with NATO, I believe. And uh, she, there's this famous video or YouTube recording of her. Have you heard that? Uh, her and this guy named Jeffrey Pyatt, U.S. ambassador. And it's basically them handpicking which opposition figures uh, or basically picking the regime that they want in Ukraine. And in it, she says stuff like, fuck the EU, you know, you get a, uh, well, now the validity of the, the recording, I don't know, but the, I haven't heard a lot about it in mainstream media, whether it's, um, true or not, you know, it could be some fake recording. I, I have no clue, but this book's acting like it's legitimate. And they're pl- they're picking who who is a good candidate, who is a bad candidate to have as the what is it prime minister of Ukraine or the leader of Ukraine. It talks about how they've invested money, how much money, billions and billions of dollars in these regime change and the operations in Ukraine. Uh, it also ties in Biden to the operations that were going on you know, in the 2010s, not John, that specifically says that John Kerry was somehow left out of it. And he was the secretary of state at the time. I thought that was kind of interesting because I mean, just from what I hear that there's Biden's have had a lot of uh, interest in this area for some time now. Yeah. It's not just the Biden's, 
I mean, it's the if, Clintons. You know, if it was just the Bidens, I don't think we'd be um, involved with the Ukraine. I think it's, I think it's a systemic inter- uh, interest, mm-hmm. um, a regime interest in the Ukraine, or else we wouldn't be contributing billions and billions and billions of resources, both in money, equipment, personnel, political clout, etc. Again, bringing us on the brink of something bigger between now NATO and Russia, but NATO and China, NATO and Iran, um, and others. Well, it's it's funny how we just like we're supposed to just say we're not at war with Ukraine, like we're just providing aid, right? That's just a euphemism for saying to me that we are at war. Oh, we're because we're funding the whole fucking thing. It seems like. Do you know what? We might not have American people dying for it now, but uh, you know we're providing the the money, the resources in terms of planes, ammunition, um, probably the military strategy too. All of that. I mean, I'm sure there's some covert operations going on from involving U.S. military. You know. Like through the Navy SEALs or whoever the hell, um, Rangers, is that what they're called? Well, I mean, yeah, there's different like special forces Mm -hmm. that are often used under, under the cover of non-war, if you will. Um, in other words, we, we use them often in conflict, which gives us you know, we, we can gives us some arm length between um, what it appears and what reality is, as opposed to bringing in tanks, bringing in F 16s, bringing in large formations of uniform members of whether it be NATO or the United States. Then all the world can see that we are, in all intents and purposes, um, at, at war. It allows us to keep that mirage going mm-hmm. that we're, we're supporting the war, but we're not necessarily um, actors in the war. And we're doing it because it's a, it's a, um, almost like a atrocities that we've got to stop, you know, that it's our moral duty as an, as a nation to engage in this, not militarily people, but through money, aid, and whatnot. We support, you know, the innocent victims in the Ukrainians to combat this tyrant, right? This aggressive tyrant, um, Putin. When in reality, we know that's all bullshit, I think. Yeah, the the narrative is this is this is the tip of the spear in defense of Western civilization and everything that comes with it versus the barbarians, the tyrants, the authoritarians, whatever you want to call the, the others, the us versus them. Um, That's kind of the formal purpose. The real person uh, purpose is, you know, left up to 
you know, conspiracy theorists, if you will, because it's, it's unless you're privy to, to knowledge, it's hard to spe- speculate. I mean, we can look at and see that, you know, the Bidens are involved and other regime members are involved um, for strictly selfish reasons or monetary reasons, mm-hmm. you know, or is it both? Can you both defend, you know, Western liberal values and make money off of it? Mm-hmm. Or does it have to be one or the other? You know, I think, I think it depends on how you see the conflict. You know, if you see it as a defense, I think it can be a defensive liberal values and an opportunity that is being taken away to make a lot of money for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, like with the Trump election or not the Trump election, but the, um, the linking, the mass media's linking Russia to Trump's election worked in their favor. If their goal was to, um, get into a conflict in Ukraine that helps establish kind of a narrative that Russia's bad, right? That they're intent on, um, what am I trying to say? That they're intent on doing, I don't know. It just sets up a, um, kind of a, um, a narrative that Russia's dirty, right? And that they're, engaging in not only Ukrainian uh, comp, uh, Ukrainian stuff, but they're also interfering with our own election. That they're, It helps to set up that there's the enemy. And so when Ukraine war actually does happen, in the public's mind, it's like, okay, yeah, they fucked with our election. This They're also doing other stuff out in the world. They're fucking with Ukraine, so let's support the war, you know, support funding. But they had yeah, their sights on on Ukraine. They've had their sights on Ukraine, as you see, in uh, for years, twenty years or yeah. whatnot. So, you know, when Clinton, Hillary Clinton, was always demonizing Putin back yeah. in the two thousand tens or whatever, there were all these mainstream books coming out about how much of a tyrant he is. Um. Yeah. So that's it's interesting. Yeah, I, that, I mean. You mentioned they have had their eyes on Ukraine. I think they've had their eyes on Putin for a very long time. And Ukraine is just a way to get at Putin and a very, you know, effective way thus far, at least in building an alliance with, uh, you know, the various NATO members and so forth. Um, Because, you know, as you're – you're talking about mainstream books have come out demonizing Putin for, for quite some time. And Putin basically is doing his own thing. Now, again, depending on how far back you want to go and what perspective you want to take, um, Putin has wanted, at least in the past, um, wanted to be a part of, um, as you, not NATO necessarily, but this Western coalition and was rejected in many ways. Um, at least that's what it appears. And then this was also in conjunction with NATO encroachment and the flirting with Ukraine into NATO was a bridge um, that uh, could not be crossed 
from Russians' perspective, from Putin's perspective. Um, but again, this is this is an expansion, I think, of power or trying to expand beyond Europe, beyond the United States, beyond Canada, and, and kind of the Western alliance into Russia. Um, and it hasn't been successful this far, depending on which side you take. Now, these are the events that have led up to the current conflict. Now we can talk about a little bit on where we're at with it. Yeah, where depending on which or which depending on which information organization you're you know you're listening to if you're listening to western media it's over for Trump, uh for uh Putin it's been over for Putin for quite some time it's over if you listen to non-western information outlets Russia is is winning and the US is on the verge of collapse both economic morally culturally there's going to be a multipolar world once again. So us as just common folks have to kind of read both sides and interpret well, the limited well, information we have and inform an opinion that is ill-informed at the very, very least. Or disinformed, misinformed. But he, like the, um, what's the leader, the president who's a comedian, actor, What's his name? Zelensky. 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 Zelensky is, uh, you know, brought to the capital to plead for more money, and he's in various outlets. He's 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 like on a campaign tour <laughs> for more money. You know, saying that that it's our duty almost to as American citizens to do this. We need to support increase in funding if it's over for putin well why do they why are they still asking for more money yeah exactly so i think as citizens of the united states you should ask how does ukraine or a victory by the Zelensky regime in the United States in Ukraine benefit me as a U.S. citizen? How does my life change for the better or not change for the worse? Well, because you realize um, that what they're fighting, I mean, this is the perspective of the the regime here in the media outlets like CNN, MSNBC, and so forth. We're combating... A regime, uh, the Putin and the Russians who are doing atrocities over there. They've um, started this war over Ukraine, killing people. We're saving people. So, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, "Well, yeah, I'm I'm willing to support funding this war because of the atrocities that are going on, and because I can help prevent um, further, you know." further domino effect if if russia succeeds in ukraine they're going to go to poland they're going to go to germany and so forth that's the story and so i i support it because we got to prevent that and then they flooded the the mass population with all these images of of russian atrocities you know and I've had friends who believe it wholesale and they're angry with putin and they they want 
they want um, him to be overthrown. So, um, what do we? What do you think about? Um, I love this shit. What do you think about Sean Penn's disastrous visit to Zelensky, where he handed him his he, Oscar? His Oscar. Yeah. What the? Fuck? I've had. I've had my thoughts. I have my thoughts on Sean Penn. Dude, you called him out. Oh, twenty years ago. Yeah, you were like, "Why is he in Nola, uh, New Orleans, during the the what was that Hurricane Katrina? What the fuck?" And he was always off in Iraq and whatnot, making these he visits. Was, he's but, out. He's like the Forrest Gump of of war. Yeah, and you know, because he was Saddam Hussein. He met with Saddam Hussein before we invaded Iraq. He's met with Hugo Chavez. Um, I believe Fidel Castro. Mm-hmm. He met with El Chapo, the cartel of the Sinaloa, you know, the leader of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, how is this man meeting all the world figures, not only just world figures, influential figures? And so I theorized and continue to theorize that he he works either works for the U.S. government or works with the U.S. government. On behalf of not Saddam Hussein or any of the others, on behalf of the U.S. government. Now, who within the U.S. government it could be CIA, uh, you know, other non, you know, no name organizations and so forth. But it also he also seems to be the kiss of death. He met with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein ended up getting hung. He met with Victor or um. um the president of, of, I just said his name, of Venezuela, the former president, uh, Chavez. Chavez dies. He la- he meets with... Of cancer. Um, of cancer. He meets with um, El Chapo, the mo- most notorious drug leader, cartel leader of the time. Not saying he's directly killing these folks or what have you, but his hands... is. He's always involved in these things, and he's and an so actor. He's not, and he's an actor, and he's he doesn't, you know, because initially he was portrayed as as the the rebel. He's he's speaking truth to power, um, where I think and still believe that he is a representation of power. Mm-hmm. Um, so How did he get I don't that know reputation. Much of, I wonder. You remember back in the eighties. He was dating. I guess he was in a relationship with Madonna, right? And he had violent uh, episodes with yeah. journalists and all that. So he kind of had a like a he abused her. Apparently, is what she allegedly, allegedly. Uh, yeah, and stuff that she has written about saying how abusive he allegedly was. And so he had this kind of image as a bad boy, and then he he kind of got popular in the '90s again as a, a a credible actor. You know, he won the Oscar. Oh, no. Yeah. He was up for an Oscar in Dead Man Walking, right? So he played kind of these swarthy characters, criminals, done good, whatnot. And then in 2000s, he won two Oscars. One was for uh, Mystic River, where he played this father who avenges the death of uh, the murder of his daughter in a kind of 
blood vendetta type of way where he bypassed the law and killed the person. So that sets up an image of him being like this guy willing to uh, fight the, you know, like a vigilante almost. Right. And, um, and then he won a second Oscar for milk, which was about yeah. Harvey milk. And that was fucking horrible. It was yeah. such a glossed over bullshit. Um, Maybe that's too strong, but I didn't really like it. He was not very good in it, I thought. But anyway, so he's also pro-LGBT and all that bullshit. Um, then he kind of disappears in the 2010s in terms of popular movies or whatnot. He he disappears. And like you said, throughout that whole time since, from what I remember, Katrina was kind of the first big... Um, event where he kind of was charting boats to save poor black people right being being uh because fema didn't do its job and he's gonna take power the power he has to help save lives and so since then it's he's done like you said chavez and all these little episodes where he he helps apparently helps out on a situation but the actual giving of the Oscar, this late, latest event to Zelensky, I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. That, what is that? That's nothing. Like who, and we're just supposed to say, oh, that's so nice of him. And look what he's doing. Like he doesn't want your fucking Oscar. Yeah. What does it mean? It doesn't even mean anything. I'm well, giving I mean, you my shitty Oscar. Yeah. I mean, it's a symbolic what it symbolizes, I don't know. That I'm as Sean Penn, I'm willing to, I'm sacrificing something so important to me <laughs> that the 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 regular people need to sacrifice something important. Oh, okay. For them. I didn't think about that. I, I mean, I'm just maybe that's what it means. Why he's really there is true intentions. We can only speculate, um, but he looks hard. We can observe he like he's he's everywhere. He's talk about current events. He's at the most important current event with the most important person of that current event for the last I don't know twenty thirty years. Mm-hmm. And I don't I didn't know he's had that cachet amongst the folks. When I say folks, the the regular people where that would he his presence would influence a large number of people to back whatever the regime is doing at that particular time. Well, one um, of these award shows, he Sean Penn came out and this was maybe 2 months ago or so and he introduces this is an award show. He introduces Zelensky who's on Zoom and then up pops Zelensky in this huge screen on TV and he's like pleading for whatever he's pleading money and how I can't remember what he said, but it's basically why, why is he being brought into an award show to speak to the American public? And it, and Sean Penn's the one kind of introducing him. So it's, it seems like Sean Penn, like you said, is an agent of the people behind the Ukrainian war and probably American uh, military interests across the world. Yeah. And maybe, maybe he's, 
I mean, there's again, this is all speculation. Maybe he's been mm-hmm. groomed since a very young age. You know, they realize he was a volatile character, but maybe they realize he's just stupid and he's easy to to manipulate. Because I, the very few interviews I've seen of him, he doesn't strike me as a very intelligent guy. Um, so maybe they found an easy, easy mark. What do they call that in the CIA? Um, ally? Not ally. Um, not a handler. He's being handled. He's being Maybe. handled. Maybe he really does personally um, feel like he's changing the world and the regime just kind of like, all right, how are we going to use this this guy? Maybe it's that way. Maybe it's a direct relationship where they both acknowledge that they're working with each other. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But... He's been a significant figure in significant events for quite some time. Um, the regime's going to have to come up with someone new if they haven't already to take on that role as a kind of ambassador of Western liberalism or whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's LeBron James. Maybe it's, you know, uh, you know maybe it's a collection of people this time with, with technology mm-hmm. Maybe it's these TikTok influencers or YouTube influencers. Who knows? Um, Remember Bono? Bono is out there in Africa saving lives or whatever the fuck. Or maybe that's an implicit agreement of being a star is you have to work with the regime if you want to remain a star. And that's stuff we are not privy to. Well, we know. We know that. The CIA is all up in Hollywood. I mean, even people in Hollywood have said that. Like, um, I think Ben Affleck said stuff. They're all over the place, you know. And it suits their interest to be in there. Control, you know, having people who are famous have the public eye. uh, To have them as one of your operators or to be have control over them because then they can help sway public opinion, help, um, well, maybe even go over to countries as a diplomatic relate. You know, George Clooney's always been doing that apparently. Yeah. Um, I mean, very influence. I, I, I think they recognize the regime recognizes the influence of Hollywood and entertainment, how influential it is on culture. Yeah, because that and, actor, if he's famous enough or she is famous enough, she can get certain works done, right? Like she can yeah. get things funded. So let's get, um, as an example, Sean Penn, let's get control of him. So then he'll produce, he'll act in this movie about, um, you know, Russian atrocities or, or in, you know what I mean? Like let's get, he'll produce movies that help us with our agenda. And, um, I mean, but that's been a, a strategy for years, even in world war one, world war two, you got people like, um, what's her name? The dancer, uh, Josephine Baker working for the British apparently yeah, as a spy, you know, they move around a lot too. Actors are always on the go in different countries. Yeah. And so perfect, um, person to have on your side. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, for example, um, 
Kim Jong-un of North Korea is a huge basketball fan. You have Dennis Rodman who goes over there. I mean, a lot of these world leaders, they're still, uh, they're still people too. And they admire, they admire Hollywood and, and the regime recognizes Hollywood is a, a huge weapon, bigger than any weapon the military has on infiltrating not only other governments, but cultures. You can change mm-hmm. cultures with Hollywood. Military, you can't change cultures necessarily, not without a lot of blood, mm-hmm. sweat, and tears. Hollywood is the easy way to do it. They call it like soft power. As, as yeah. Um, Hegemony. Yeah. And so, you know, with Sean Penn, hey, help us get El Chapo and you'll never have to worry about it. So he could, he hands him El Chapo. He's like a bounty hunter, potentially. Again, we're just, I'm just throwing things Ideas. out there. Mm-hmm. And he could basically do anything he wants from here on out. He got El Chapo. He helped get El Chapo. He, Went on some mission to talk to Saddam Hussein, but I mean, he's done a lot for the regime. Mm-hmm. And um, now, the reasons why he's doing it—that's all could be speculation. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, he could do it for just personal greed. I mean, smart. Yeah. I would probably do the same thing. I can do whatever I want, or, or, yeah, it could be that active. It could be passive. Like he's really got a good heart, and he's really trying to change the world for the better, and he's just getting taken advantage of. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's the Forrest Gump of current events because he shows up, you know, to every major event with every major per- person. Yeah. Uh, so where we're going with Ukraine, um, I think it leads into bigger conflict. Um, I think China and Russia, um, certainly Iran, um, in other countries out there, Saudi Arabia are forming a, a counter to the Western Alliance where we'll have a multi, at the very least a bipolar, if you will, world, potentially a multipolar world like we had when the Soviet Union and the United States were around. Um, so, you know, when power spreads, it doesn't like giving up its itself to, to others. Um, so like we were talking um, about in other podcasts, it's liquidating or neutralizing your enemies. So, and I wonder like the actual information we're getting, how, I mean, where are the journalists? That, like the, I, I mean, are there journalists in, in Ukraine reporting on stuff? Um, and journalists that you want that aren't part of the state, you know what I mean? Uh, there, there's been a huge, uh, turning against journalism, I think, because you look at that guy in Turkey, the ambassador who got dismembered in the embassy, right? The Saudi Arabian one. Uh, who exposed shit about like apparently King Solomon, Solomon or whatever? Uh, I think it was it's his son, the current king of Saudi Arabia. Oh, the son. Okay, What's his name BMS. Yeah, 
Ben Salaman or something. So he, yeah. you know, he exposed shit about that. They always wanted him. They got him. He's a journalist, apparently. Um, and then, well, you see, I think with the Trump, uh, the way the, I mean, it's, I think it's obvious that the journalists who are allowed into the White House to do all those press conferences are, are in on the deal. You know, they're being, because they work for CNN, uh, MSNBC, Fox, they're all working for these huge media corporations that are all tied to Washington, to um, corporations working in tandem to to do these, um, to make more money, right? And to get things, and to do these war campaigns in, in Ukraine as an example. So journalism, like the accurate information coming out of Ukraine, where... I mean, could you imagine just being a journalist going over there and trying to get your word out? Not going to happen. No. I mean, it's a relationship. It's agreed upon relationship um, that has boundaries and has rules. And if you go outside those rules, then you're going to be shunned, you know, ostracized. You won't be able to, I mean, you won't have any sources within the government. And I think people realize that it doesn't even have to be spoken about. Uh, oh, and a lot of articles and journalists in the New York Times, for example, they never credit, um, they never say who their source is. Or the, a lot of times they don't use their sources. An insider said, or an insider working for the CIA says this. Um, well, okay, that might be true. But that also doesn't mean that that insider's not fucking with the journalist telling them what they want. You know what I mean? To help spin the narrative or or or, or the story. Um, or they might just be making it up. <laughs> this such and such. This uh, insider said this. Well, how do we how do we keep them accountable for for that? How how can we accurate really trust what the journalist is saying and. Uh, that they have that inside intel we're just supposed to well i guess trust the outlet which you know like the new york times has a lot of trusted uh followers so they don't really need to um to to they don't really need the name of that insider because they they actually trust the journalist or the the outlet now, journalism has also lo uh, lost a lot of credibility lately in the past 10 years, just as a whole, don't you think? Because the curtain has been lifted, I think, in, a, in my eyes at least. And I think a lot of people see that, they're, that it's corrupt, it's, they're working for Washington. Not yeah, for us. It's, it's journalism has definitely lost lost its credibility with I think a lot of uh, citizens of the United States. Um, now, whether it's it's been exposed for its uh, you know corruption or its relationship with the government and the regime, I mean, you could argue that it's always been that way. What hasn't always been like that is it's been exposed now, mm. and we see journalism for what it's always has been. Um, and then you mentioned earlier, 
we're getting limited information, ill, ill-informed, we're ill-informed as a people, but you put yourself in the regime's shoes. Why would, what benefit do they get from an informed populace? Um, unless it's the information that they want injected in our brains, then there, I don't see any benefit. You want to keep them ill-informed. You want to keep them confused. You, mm-hmm. you don't want them to understand the world um, as it, as it is. Um, you want them to understand the world as, uh, they want it to be, or as the narrative has been constructed for the length of our country, you know, the, the liberal values, freedom, liberty, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's, there's no, there's no benefit for journalism, or the regime to to tell us the truth from a journalist perspective from a business perspective a lot of people don't want to involve themselves in the world how it is they want to be entertained yeah and i think journalism has recognized that too that's where the money is at huge yeah you know so they're yeah that's that kind of the the book called uh amusing ourselves to death it's by Neil Postman, I think, and he's kind of like a cultural critic, also a, a critic on journalism who recognized like 30 years ago that news outlets are moving to an entertainment-based strategy where um, you've, got plays, you've got people like Bill O'Reilly who, who are some other ones, you know, basically get these figures out there broadcasters who are almost like actors um tell story you know present stories that are scintillating or scandalous or outrageous um focus on those types of stories human interest rather than on hard news because you can maximize profits from it your ad revenue will be huge people will watch people are not going to watch this boring ass c-span type information you know flow where it's just simple facts they gotta be dazzled and be entertained be emotional uh triggered emotionally um it kind of goes on what we were saying about a couple weeks ago about how it helps the regime to keep us emotional and to react on our emotion to kind of be led by our emotions rather than by our intellect or our thinking, um, which plays into the Edward Bernaysian type stuff about mass manipulation and that the emotion leading the public by their emotions is uh, more powerful than their intellect, you know? So do you want to get onto TikTok? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit of TikTok and China. TikTok has been in the news this week. Um, there's been committee meetings in 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 Washington on TikTok's influence and what are they? What is TikTok? What is it doing nefariously? Is it spying? Is it uh, surveilling? Is it collecting data? Of course. Um, And if so, is it outside the normal kind of business parameters? Because a lot of businesses collect data of their customers. Of course. Um, But Google does the same. 
And so does every other fucking yeah. thing. And I think I think the question is, is this a national threat? Is this a, probably a potential not. threat that could um see how easily very, I said that? The very fabric of of uh of America as we know it. I mean and I think that's some some people think that that's the um that's to say that it's a threat is um will allow people will make people what am I trying to say? That it's they're using that as an excuse to do something about TikTok, but in, in actuality what it's really about is competition for money for the ad revenue. Like it's it's a major competitor, so they've got to try to get rid of it and they can use our fear of being monitored and of course national threat. I mean governments have always been saying using the excuse of national threat for us to go into other places and kill everybody. You know what I mean? It's a but I don't really know. It it probably is a national threat. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're right because TikTok's been around a few years now. And as long as TikTok's been around, these conversations of it being a uh, apparatus of the CCP collecting data, spying, whatever, whatever you want to describe it, getting into personal information has been around as long as TikTok has. So why didn't we do anything about it before? So this eliminating the competition from a capitalistic perspective makes sense as well. You can't tell the people that. Or maybe you could, but it sounds better when you say it's a national threat. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say it's, a, you know, a potential, um, not only just a th- threat, a threat that could destroy America, you know, destroy the youth of America. Mm-hmm. Corrupt the minds. And, and so why did it just come up now? To me, I think it's they're building at least a, you know, some call them the neocons, but a, a strong, significant group within the regime, I think, wants to go head to head with China. And they're building that, building that narrative, that excuse, that reason t- to do just that. But I also think there's a large contingency within the regime that is basically, they call it elite capture which are what we used to call just paid off by the, by an outside group in this case, China or are ideologically married to the, the same Chinese ideas, communist ideas at the very least. Um, so there's, I think potential infighting within the regime itself that we can only speculate about, but we can, we but we can observe the actions of the regime mm-hmm. and we can observe the rhetoric of the regime and then deduce from there what the regime uh, really means. I mean, you, you brought it up earlier or on the baby in the other podcast about Nancy Pelosi. When I said that is power showing itself, you asked, well, are you sure that wasn't a rival faction within the regime? that just like expose her. And that could be the case too. I, I don't know, but, um, so the question is why is, is TikTok the problem with TikTok now be being given the seriousness that it should have been given years ago. If it is 
you know, a, a threat that could end the United States. Um, I think it's a building of a narrative, a creation of a narrative um, for eventual conflict with, with China. But how could you, if a lot of the politicians are, and the leaders in Washington are under the control of China, or what did you call it, captured? Why yeah, call it elite capture? Yeah. Why would they be interested in setting up a conflict with China? Like no, it'd I'm be saying the opposite. I, I think there's rival factions oh. within the regime. Yeah. Oh, I see. And, I see. and okay. the, one of the factions is confrontation with China. The other faction is no, we work with China. I see. And there's even, you know, it could split up from there. Like who's our biggest threat. I'm sure there's groups that seem to be winning that think Russia is our biggest threat. Others think it's China. Others might think it's Trump voters. Others might think it's, you know, you name, I mean, America has many enemies, Iran uh, and so forth. That's the interesting, that's the interesting piece that we don't get to see until it spills out into, into the public, these in, these inter, internal fights, these rival yeah. factions and so forth. Um, yeah, but it would seem, I mean, a lot of these corporations work with China for manufacturing and for uh, cheap labor, all that. So why it would seem like the major percentage of corporations would be against any sort of conflict with China. The fucking antibiotic industry, the pain med yeah. industry, all of that uh, is tied into China. So I don't know if that's a... I just don't see that being an option. I mean, we've talked about this before. In a way, we are China. We're like they're conjoined twins, and you know what I mean. We we operate. We have the same bloodstream. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's two perspectives. There's, I mean, you got to think of all options. One is the confrontation with China. The other is. Um, we are already captured by China and this is, this is a controlled demolition of the United States as we knew it, um, where we're just basically, when I say we, the elites are setting us up for a, you know, setting us, setting us up for China's rise and we become now an underling of, of, of China um, because they you know, more China owns obvious. us. I mean, because like you like, said, entertainment is reliant on China. And when I say entertainment, the movie inter industry, oh yeah, the sports industry is heavily yeah. reliant on China. All um, them the, shoes they make. The, um, all them shoes. NBA is big in China. Um, the tech people industry. Were people were coming Apple, at. Apple, Microsoft. Oh, yeah. The rare earth metal industry. Uh, a lot of people were coming at. LeBron James, you know, for um, not condemning the anti-LGBT kind of uh, trend, whatever, with in China, and also the the slave, basically slave labor for all those shoes. Remember, it did, wasn't there a huge 
problem with the Houston Rockets owner who condemned China somehow or didn't? Um, it was the GM, Maury or Morsi, something like that. Uh, the Houston GM who yeah, basically condemned China and the rest of the NBA just jumped exact. on him because he, he messed with their business plan. Yeah. You know, he's messing with money. And if you can kind of just put all that morality BS to the side, now you can use it as a weapon against like someone like LeBron James when he's like criticizing the United States, but you also have to understand his perspective. Like he's, he's trying to make money. Steve Kerr is trying to make money and he rocked the boat and potentially these players, these coaches lost a lot of money because they were out of line. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're a, just a normal person and kind of recognize like LeBron James could care less about um, civil issues here in the United States. You mean really, but he seems to, especially when it comes to race or he could, he could live, he could have two opposing thoughts he mm-hmm. could have personal uh, interests in civil rights here in the United States, not give a crap about it in China because he's just trying to make money and try to make money in China. You know, you can have yeah. conflicting views that are beneficial to you. Yeah, definitely. Because, or he could be, he could not really, he could be amoral, like we talked about. Like, he could care less about race, but he he wants that cultural cachet here. He wants influence here, so he's going to, let's say, support BLM and all this stuff. But whether he does or not, I don't really know. But I know he's, a, from what I remember, he's a huge kind of commentator on the racial injustice here in the country and um but he might not actually care but he or he also might be told to say that shit you know cuz like we go back to the CIA control over Hollywood and whatnot they also control maybe or allegedly these celebrities who have a lot of cultural power Beyonce and whatnot i'm not saying she is handled by whoever but you know what i mean like it could it goes back to our perspective we don't really know the truth to these things but we can we can line up certain types of behavior and see that there's a there's a uh, discrepancy there like with lebron james he supports these horrific violations that apparently go on in these chinese factories and um you know slave labor and whatnot but then at the same time, he's trying to say that the U.S., there's a huge racial uh, oppression of black people. There's all this injustice going on here. You know, to me, that's a discrepancy that reveals a tear in the fabric of what they're trying to present to us. And it, it, it's a revealing look into the manipulation behind it, you know. Yeah, I mean hypocrisy it it's it can be used as a a weapon against someone like LeBron James but it is it's also irrelevant. I mean civil rights issues could be a personal thing for him here in the United States. Um but at the same time he can make money off of China and from China and 
not consider or at least not acknowledge the civil rights abuses in, in places like China where he's making money. Um, it's, it's hypocritical. Yes, but it's irrelevant. I think unless you could take advantage of it, but irrelevant, yeah, at least to this is, point, he's still making a lot of money. He still has a lot of influence. People respect him here in the United States and maybe in China. Um, so what? He's hypocritical. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily reveal that he's an agent of the regime, you know, to put it dramatically. But it, it, it. At the very least, he's hypocritical. Let's say, or ignorant. You know, um, but I hesitate to think he is ignorant, especially of what's going on in China um, with the factories and all that slave labor, social injustice there. Now, whether or not he's supporting BLM and, and saying that there's all this racial suppression, uh, oppression here, whether or not he believes that if he does, I think he's ignorant, but I, I mean, don't yeah. Know. It, and so the, us or those who will say, you, you know, recognize that hypocrisy and use it even as a weapon against to disparage LeBron James. Oh, you're a hypocrite. You, mm -hmm. you know, you sell shoes or you, you play, uh, you pander to China um, and their slave labors, their slavery there. But the people who are accusing him, do they really care that there's slavery in China? Oh yeah. No, definitely. I mean, not. so it's just really a, ba a battle that is beyond, and that's why I say it's irrelevant. Beyond that, it's really a battle of control and power with using, quote-unquote, human rights as a tool or a weapon against your enemy, your political enemy. Yeah, they're trying to destroy his, his reputation in a way, his influence by trying to expose that he's corrupt. And so... You know, and that happens on multiple levels within, especially people who have our eye, who we watch and who have influenced us. You know, that's why it would behoove people, the regime, to control all of Hollywood, all of the music industry, all of celebrity in general, media. Then they could help eliminate any sort of uh, rogue person who's going to start having influence that uh, it can run counters to their interests, you know? Um, yeah. Interesting, huh? Interesting stuff. Do, do you have anything else to say TikTok wise? We can move on to the Trump arrest. I just arrest. think we, with, with, we could talk about this in the future when it's brought up again with, with TikTok, but more specifically censorship is I have to be careful with myself and ask myself, do I want TikTok censored by oh, the government? Because if it is censored by the government, does that, and they pass laws based on national threat, much like the Patriot Act, well, what is next? What are they going to censor next? What are they going to ban next based off of national threats? Is it going to be... Twitter? Is it going to be podcasts? Is it going to be blogs, books, 
et cetera, et cetera. So it's a dilemma that one should think about deeply. Yes, it could be TikTok, could be apparatus. Yes, it could be spying on us. All those negative things. But what should the government do about it? Do we want the government to censor? Because, again, power likes to reveal itself, but power also likes to grow, much like the Patriot Act. What do they turn to next? Well, we know they've already done through the Twitter files revealed that they've, when was it? The January 6th or Trump? I can't remember exactly, but have had an influence on censoring Twitter. Um, oh, the Biden, the Biden laptop, right? And the election. Weren't they since they were coercing the leaders of Twitter to the FBI, I believe uh, to, to censor what was it, pro-Trump stuff? To suppress the Biden email, or sorry, Biden laptop stuff. Basically censoring. Shadow banning people is a big thing. Uh, the algorithms with Google censors competitors' um, websites by just having them not show up on your search. That's a form of censorship, you know, algorithm control. Amazon does the same thing apparently with their uh, their uh, search algorithms, where it pops up their companies rather than op- opposition companies, um, because people aren't going to keep scrolling through their search results to find whatever they're going to look at the first top five or whatever and pick one, you know. Yeah, it makes it harder for sure. Um, And, you know, it makes you work for it when you're shadow banned. At some point, we have to talk about the huge influence that was gained from these companies like Google, um, iPhone, you know, the Apple. In terms of the knowledge that the, you know, Foucault says truth is power, knowledge is power. When in the 2000s, maybe even before starting in the 90s, when the internet became so popular and so so ubiquitous and used, the amount of private information that they got in the early stages on people in positions of power, that huge shift that must have happened in power. And now it might not have been a huge shift because the people who rolled out the internet might have been the people in power anyways. It just helped solidify their power maybe. But um, if it was, if they were outside agents, let's like say people from Silicon Valley who, whoever they had allegiances to, we don't, I don't really know, but those, that information they got in their early days must have been huge. And, and if they aren't, weren't part of the regime at that time, then they have to be the regime now, or at least a contender. It's just from the sheer amount of information they got on people. Cause then you could manipulate people, right? Yeah. And I think they could do it on a mass scale and more efficient scale. 
you know, you had J. Edgar Hoover who did similar yeah. things when he was the leader of the FBI who kind of spied on politicians and key figures in the regime and used that against yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with technology, you can do it on a mass scale and we make it easy for them. We do a lot of, or at least we did a lot of stupid shit on the internet. Yeah. And now we, and people, people I think um, the majority of people I'll speak for myself. I, I didn't, even think at the, maybe I did I don't remember but I didn't think it was being monitored at the time and so if you if I'm a CEO of rare earth metals whatever titanium whatever you know at the time 2000 how I don't know if I would have thought is my communication private you know are my cell phone text messages are my emails private? They always say, Oh yeah, we've got a secure network, this and that. But I mean, how legitimate is that? And so, you know, I'm sleeping with my neighbor's wife or whatever. And I'm talking to her over messages and, Oh shit. China's hacked my, my, or, or Google has hacked my, cell phone my chart you know my communications well i have to step down now because or i have to change my policies or who i support who i give money to you know what i mean it leaves that open to manipulation and i just wonder those are that's kind of interesting to me if it was a shift in a regime because of that or if if they were the regime in the first place and how much information they got and on who? Yeah. I mean, I think like the intelligence agencies and FBI, I think they've always played, uh, you know, at least post-World War II, a large and significant role within the regime. Now, with technology, perhaps their role has and their significance has expanded and maybe tipped the balance within the regime from you know, what were the other corrupt institutions before or institutions that played a role, maybe big business played a role in influencing um, government, let's say. It's been tipped from big business, the big oil tycoons, you know, the greasy, fat, chubby guys. Bush. From th- from them to, to the intelligence community, you know, because not only do they have the tools – to spy on politicians, but they have tools to spy on CEOs of X company. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the shift of power, or I mean, the power has shifted from, you know, the, one sector to another. Yeah. One sector to another. Yeah. And, I mean, and maybe that's had- something, you know, J Edgar Hoover was trying to do, Maybe he didn't have a big plan, but he was trying to expand his power. He just didn't have the technology to do it. Mm-hmm. So at the time, yeah, yeah. All right, you want to finish up with the potential Trump arrest? Yep. All right. So now I guess. This, yeah. I'm sorry. This this I don't really. I mean, to me, it seems like a another of those. 
precious pearls and the long line of pearls that they tried to uh, link up. It's it to me. It seems like a my metaphor was going off. <laughs> I was going to say pearl necklace, but I'm like, wait, I can't say that. Um, it's another one of those incidences to me that is like a distraction to try to get people turned the other way to look to try to get Trump down, you know, to try to defeat Trump. They've been doing this for the past six years, trying to arrest him, trying to get, you know, get him indicted or uh, what do you call it? Impeached and whatnot. It's like nothing ever comes of it. Yeah, I think it's just the regime. I don't think Trump will ever be president again. I don't think he'll even be able to, to run in the later stages of the campaign. The regime just isn't going to allow it this time. I think they were potentially caught off guard in 2016. And from what I understand, I don't know much about this either. It sounds like there was Stormy Daniels, some lady he had an affair with. There was hush money. And it sounds like that was like a misdemeanor. And well, the hush money now, was used from money from public coffers or what? I'm not sure. I don't know what this, the, uh, I think it's in New York, what they're going to do. Um, but it sounds like they want to like arrest them, put them in handcuffs. And to me, that's all, it's all symbolic. I don't know if he'll go to jail. Maybe he will. Mm-hmm. Um, but bottom line, I just, I, the, the symbolism, this will be, if it does happen the first time in U S history that a president of the United States is arrested. And so what does that mean for us? as a country and what does that mean for us as a country moving forward? Um, because other governments do the same thing. They like, it seems like a, a, almost a ritual where the former president is arrested, sent to prison for a little bit and then they get out and a new president comes in, they're arrested. But do we always prided ourselves or at least the narrative was that we weren't like other countries. We were a stable regime. Mm-hmm. And our we had a peaceful transfer of power um, through elections, where in other countries it was always violent or, if, um, or like punitive. when it did occur. When it sorry, when it did occur in our country, like with Nixon, there was a, um, a homeostasis created in the aftermath out of the interest of public. Um, the interest of culture, like, because apparently Ford, what do they call that? Excused him, pardoned him, pardoned Nixon, didn't allow for, you know, some sort of legal persecution or arrest to happen to Nixon out of the interest that it would keep our country together. You know, with Trump, if that was to happen, it he would not be pardoned, most likely which is a big difference, you know, because it shows that, that he's not, um, I mean, I mean, what do you think that, is that a big difference? Um, I don't know if it's a big difference. I think, you know, it, the, the regime feels comfortable enough in doing it. I don't think there's a threat and there shouldn't be a threat if he's arrested. There's no power that's going to kind of disrupt the regime's power if he's arrested. He, 
Trump doesn't have any power other than to influence his people that are like his diehard, diehard fans and followers, which look what happened with that on January 6th. And so I don't think there's a threat out there if he is arrested. Um, I think it's a symbolic gesture saying, once again, we are in charge. We are in power and know your, know your place. Yeah. So it's like another little hit, another little spanking. Does it also on the face, like it's another slap of humiliation. Could it also be merely uh, almost catalyst? You know how they do, they like to trigger people and get them stirred up again uh, to stir up his base. Yeah. I mean, it could, it, I mean, from what it sounds like his, his poll numbers are increasing, you know, every threat of arrest, it, it energizes his base, but I think it could be a setup as well. Mm-hmm. Another January 6th, potentially like Trump had his chance. He was president. He really didn't do anything. He certainly didn't do anything for his followers afterwards. Um, well, and then a lot of them were super pissed off that he rolled out the, uh, what was that operation to get the vaccines out? Lightning yeah. speed or whatever it was. Yeah. Right. That he, they, he betrayed them. Trump's uh, strength was he, I don't know where it came from, maybe his years in entertainment. Um, he could tap in to uh, what the populace wanted and what their their um, grievances were, where potentially the regime was unable to do it because they were so disconnected and they had cut any ties with the plebs, the plebs, whereas Trump understood the grievances of the populace. Or he cared. Maybe the regime understood, just didn't give a crap. And he activated the populace. Once the populace was activated and got him elected, um, he was either unable or unwilling to do what it took to capture some of that power and make real change on behalf of those folks who voted him in. In fact, it's just the opposite. I think his election gave more power to the regime. Look at, are we better off now than where we were before? We and these issues that were, that were around before Trump are still here, but in more extreme fashion from a Trump voter perspective. Nothing's changed. In fact, there's less rights. There's more of all the issues that, that a, a typical Trump voter disdains is still around but but more but more so and so was it was it worth it who knows was it effective did they get did the those folks who voted trump in get what they wanted absolutely not i i mean so but the but the regime can't take any chances and so they're never going to allow him to be president i mean the president is a regime in reality is a regime position it's not the people's position now i know that's what the constitution tells us i know that's what our history tells us but in reality the regime 
presents us a couple of regime candidates and we vote that candidate in, but he's still part of the regime. But he's a and public so, servant. Yes. He's and Nancy Pelosi's been a public servant yeah. for forty years. Ignore the inside information she has in the stock market, yeah. allegedly. Ignore all her billions and billions and in inner workings in corporations, supranational corporations. You know what I mean? This idea of public servant makes me vomit. Yeah. It's it's such a bullshit. Um, Thing they always rely on. Oh, I'm just a public servant. I'm here for you. I'm one of you. Yeah. No one believes that shit. But um, with the Trump thing, just to kind of go back to the um, grievances some of his supporters have on the fact that he helped roll out the vaccine is maybe it was just a political blunder on his part that he, on the one hand, thought, ooh, I can be the hero here. I can maybe even get some support from my opposition by saying, you know, who the people who believed that the vaccine was necessary. Like I could, I could get them on my favor or on my side by doing this. Um, or, and, or you know what I mean? Like maybe he thought that that would help him uh, politically with uh, the majority of people who, or with some people who opposed him. What do you think? I think I think Trump was someone who always wanted to be part of the regime and at least part of the inner party. And the inner party was never gonna allow him to be that. Yeah, because um, when he when he back to this vaccine thing, sorry, I'm focusing on that for some reason, but when he was saying he was going to get this vaccine out within his presidency, the, the his opposition, political opposition, like uh, the Ding Dong, what's her name? Uh, our vice president. <laughs> uh, what's her name? <laughs> Kamala Harris. Thank you. God damn. I need to stop drinking. Uh, Kamala Harris, Biden, all of them were saying, I'm not taking a vaccine that he rolls out. Hell no. And then right after he gets uh, defeated, they're like, this vaccine will save your life. It'll, you know what I mean? So he was doomed from the beginning. It wouldn't matter what he did. Uh, and it wasn't just the vaccine. It was also the fact that he shut the United States down essentially. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, You're and, right. And shut the economy down. And that's what I think a lot of his voters and just people in general were pissed off about is, but that's brilliant from the regime's perspective. Yeah. Blame him for it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> He's exactly. the one he was in power. Yep. Yeah. But and, all the people feeding him information were the regime, you know, threat, uh, yeah. fear, uh, causing him to make these decisions based on um, fear-based shit. Like we've got to shut the country down. This is a huge pandemic that's going to kill everybody. If you don't, you're going to be blamed for all these deaths. Yeah. Yep. So he was, he, he, he flirted with power. He didn't use power and power bit back. He found out what real power was and, so did the folks who voted for him. And 
now, you know, the, the curtain has been drawn and there are no illusions anymore. This is why I don't think, you know, Gavin Newsom or Pelosi cares that they were caught eating at a restaurant or getting their hair done during COVID or the arrest of a, you know, of a former president and what that image plays on the United States going forward. They don't care about that anymore. And there's also bigger things going on that we're still trying to figure it out. We're talking about China as an example. And so the days of old are over the actions and the, in the perception of the country as it was in the nineties and eighties and even before is over. And so we have to accept that for now and try to figure out how to maneuver through this new, this new space. And I think podcasts like this topics like this and topics we discuss on our other uh, podcast will help us establish a new worldview and hopefully um, at the very least survive this new world and maybe flourish this new world in this new world. Yeah. I, well, for me, the podcast is, is just to do maybe to understand it, you know, to help understand what's going on as a way to, um, analyze it also, you know, to talk to you about it, to hear your ideas also, um, the scope of it, I mean, is going to be minimal <laughs> at best, I think, which is fine, like for me, but, um, help me weather the confusion, you know, to get through, to trudge through the mass information out there that's flooding our lives and the confusion of it. Like what, what the hell is going on now? What I can do with that information, nothing probably maybe make better choices. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's not, there's limited. It's just going to make me maybe feel better. Like I have a better grasp of it. I mean, I, I think I think it can go farther than that too. If we have a, at least what you feel as a sound worldview based off of inform, you know, information and um, other other you know developed facts, it helps you make decisions, informed decisions that does impact you on a daily life, whether it be monetary decisions like where do I keep my money. Do I keep it in a bank? You know, that's something we can talk about uh, or at least monitor as we move forward is this financial collapse. Mm -hmm. So understanding as best we can with limited information, a worldview that helps us make decisions on what do we do with our money as an example? What do we do with our lives? Do we move to a certain spot? Do we move away from a certain spot? Um, worldview does have world uh real world consequences i believe if you take it seriously if yeah. you take these type of this type of dialogue that you and i are having seriously it does inform your decisions if it's just fun to talk about it and you just it's kind of a release mm -hmm. then it may not inform and you just go back to your your life and it doesn't change your decisions then so be it as well as far as the audience is concerned um again the, the primary focus for me and I think for you is to to do what just that what I was talking about 
establish an understanding and perhaps a new worldview that helps create informed decisions. An audience may help that, or it may make it more confusing. If we do start having a large audience, it may make it more confusing for us. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Or for them. Um, it's yeah, just good you- to have a conversation, put it on record, and perhaps use it as a reference moving forward. Um, now, do you want... Uh- why don't you explain the two plus two? Why are we calling this two plus two? Where did it come from? Well, two plus two came from the, the famous 1984 George, or, uh, you know, book written by George Orwell, 1984. And we're going to talk about 84 in detail later on in a few weeks. So I won't get into the details. Um, so I'll be just, flat and broad with my interpretation, but two plus two to me is two plus two equals five in reality, or what we've been taught is two plus two equals four. Um, but in reality, those who are in power, um, can change that and can make two plus two equals five. And, enforce that for you to either a say it, but primarily or optimally for them, for you to believe it, that two plus two equals five because the regime says so. And again, we'll get into the details of this, uh, in a few weeks. Um, and so it's an example of double think, double think an illusion. The truth can change. Facts can change. And, and and so forth. Yeah, and that ra- reality can reality is what um, reality is malleable. In other words, it's um, not necessarily important that some two plus two is four. It's that you think that two plus two is five. It, it, that it can be. And that that's the reality. The pers- the mind is what creates reality. There's not re- there is a reality, <laughs> but the most more importantly, the mind is what creates the reality, and that that is there. It can be a major focus on like a power. Um, the people in power trying to create that in the mind of the individual, whatever reality they want. And so right. that think, the kind of think, reflects that that two plus two right. equals five reflects that. And the reason why we're calling this podcast that is because, well, in my mind, you came up with the title. I thought it was really good because it's, I like how it looks two plus two is five or two plus two equals five. It's kind of, um, reduced and it's really, I don't know. I like it. And I think it, in terms of our more freeform podcast, which is what this is, it's in a way us saying well i wanted it to be two plus two is four because in my mind i was thinking this podcast is us going to be just talking truth or trying to sort out truth from the lies or whatnot and to me that would be two plus two is four you know like we're we're bringing it back to what we what the truth is but two plus two is five 
if you're thinking we're, we're getting information that's all refracted anyways, what is the, like, we don't know what really the truth is, what reality is. It's all um, fragmented in a way. So I don't know. What what do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you, you talk about it's two plus two equals four is, comes is a, is a mental thing comes from the mind what i'm thinking about is who controls the mind and you alluded to it um mm-hmm. like i can't change two plus two equals four from two plus two two uh two plus two equals five only those in power can do that and it's also you know it's a metaphor into how the narrative can change as we see in these current events that we talk about how the narrative of the united states as a noble, virtuous country changes and history can change, which, you know, 84 addresses a little bit as well. Bottom line is two plus two is what equals whatever those in power want it to be. And it's an illusion and it's a recognition. The name is also recognition by us that what we see, what informs us, with respect to these current events is limited at very best an illusion yeah. worst case. Um, so we're yeah. trying to figure out with these current events, what two plus two equals mm-hmm. what Ukraine, as I discussed earlier, I said, Ukraine is a kind of a catalyst or part of a bigger thing with China. And what, what is China? What's the influence does it have on our elite? We don't, we don't know. We don't know what two plus two equals right now. And this podcast will help us at least give us an understanding of what two plus two equals in this particular week. It may equal eight. It may, it may equal nine. One day it may equal four. But it's part of that worldview that uh, we were talking about. When everything kind of makes sense to us, mm-hmm. two plus two equals four makes sense. And when we this as we move forward with this podcast we're trying to develop logic and turn two plus two equals five into two plus two equals four doesn't mean it's true as you were it's very nebulous malleable but it makes sense to us right now at least i'll speak from my perspective nothing makes sense everything is two plus two equals five which doesn't make sense and through this podcast through these current events, through the Panopticon, the other um, podcast we talk about, I'm trying to make five turn into a four. And I think that that uh, this name here is apt for my feelings yeah. and my desires of this. And at the very, at the very least, it sets up a record that, you know, when 1984, they talk about um, history's always manipulated changed and even from 10 days ago they'll change it because they have power uh, the the party ingsoc has power over all of the media outlets the historical records so they just simply edit it change it and no one really remembers so in a way this our podcasts are a record hopefully unchanged you know over time that we can kind of like a Rosetta stone or what have you, we can go back to um, as a 
permanent record type that we can think, well, what are they doing now? Okay, so like two years from now, things will be happening and we'll be like, oh, remember back in 2023 when Trump was going to get arrested? Did that even happen? Or, you know, I mean, of course you can look on the internet and say, yeah, it happened or you just have the memory of it. But um, it's kind of like a an edit. It's like a, from in my mind, it's like a, 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 um, a vetted record of what we were thinking at the time and that that has some sort of uh, that has a um, a value when you're inundated with all this other stuff all the time from other sources you know and other narratives in the in the future yeah it's it's a visual journal uh, perhaps and um putting our thoughts on record um not the truth not trying to you know debate one side or the other necessarily uh, just trying to you know find again find that logic try to make sense of you know the un the, you know things that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Any closing comments? Um, any thoughts for next week? What do you, um, as far as the current events? Do you think any anything you want to discuss for next week, or any upcoming story you see on the horizon? Well, I think definitely the Trump arrests uh, is going to be hanging out there still. I think, uh, of course, Ukraine. I mean, all these events are going to be running events. Ukraine is still going to be around. China is still going to be around. Um, I don't see anything on the horizon for next week, other you know, outside of that necessarily. Um, but we'll see. At some point, I, I'd like to discuss in the future podcast um, this trend I see in podcasts that are like conspiracy theorists or also um, opposition to the, you know, what am I trying to say? Dissident podcasts or um, where a lot of them kind of support Trump. The right from the right, I guess, or the independent independence libertarians that there there's this huge trend in anti trans comments and I'm my fear is that they're going to be it's it's like increasing, you know, and that there's gonna and that it's gonna seep into LGBT or LGB LGB LGBTQ. Yeah, that's it. Um, do you know what I mean? Like it's it's whereas before no one really gave a shit. They didn't have any thoughts on trans. And suddenly now it's an issue. And will that seep into anti-gay rhetoric? Now, whether or not these podcasters are doing it on purpose or if they're just, that's how they really feel, or if they're doing it to kind of sway their public opinion to get them to be more anti-trans, anti-gay, I don't know. 
But um, at some point, I think I would like to talk about that and get your thoughts. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, it kind of goes back to I can't change two plus two to equal five or back to four. These issues that come up seemingly out of the blue or maybe were always there just under the current, but now have become a spotlight issues. Um, what's the genesis of the issues? Why is this now in the spotlight? Kind of like you were alluding to who's generating, who has the power to bring issues to the people and what is the pushback impact impact? Yeah. What, what's the that? impact on the, the, the people who yeah. are aligned with certain, um, uh, I guess ideologies or aligned to certain party, different parties, different political figures. Like I just, uh, yeah. So that, that, that that's going to be interesting. I think for me to talk to talk about, because on the one hand, it turns me off, honestly, to listen to people that who on the one hand talk about or are critical of, of, different leaders and whatnot that I'm critical that I agree with, like, yeah. Um, the understanding of surveillance or, or mass manipulation, but then they throw in this anti-gay comment or anti, and I can see that it's laced with some, some actual, uh, hate almost, mm-hmm. or there's something there, you know? And I, I hate, I, I just don't, I'm I'm afraid that it's going to be linked that you're if you're critical of surveillance or of mass manipulation, right? They're going to align it with you being critical of gay, uh, anti-gay, or anti-trans, and I think that's kind of dangerous. Yeah, no, that's definitely an issue, and it's definitely a current event, and definitely an event that has impacts not only on. It might it, it it might have or probably does have negative impacts on the people it's meant to support, but not in a way that you may think. So you mentioned anti-trans. It's like, what's the benefit of the regime to make this a major issue? Knowing, assumingly knowing that there's going to be pushback, there's going to be impact on the marginalized community that's trying to Mm -hmm. help then your question is again is the regime actually trying to help these regime uh these uh, marginalized communities or is it just using it as a tool against its enemies Mm -hmm. and so that's again looking at it from a structural perspective and trying at least this is how i try to look at put uh, look at it objectively and not look at it as a moral thing necessarily is does the regime have the best interests of these marginalized communities at heart or is it just using it as a bludgeon to neutralize its opponents and its enemies or to disrupt or disrupt or is it both I mean, you can do, you could, again, you can have ideological leanings and use 
these marginalized communities as a bludgeon. It, it can be both. It, can, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. And then what does the other side do about it? You know? Um, yeah. So you can, cause it could happen on the other side too, where you can disagree with, let's say trans rights, but also get clumped into anti-trans hatred, Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Say that you could be, you say that one more time. You could be looking at from the other side where, you know, you're talking about these conspiracy right wingers, alt ringers, what have you, who you're concerned that the fact that the trans rights have been brought up, um, is annoying to you at the very least because you agree with a lot of what's going on outside of, let's say, just trans because yeah. this hatred towards trans, you're worried is going to seep into the LGBT, gay community, and so forth. Um, but looking at it from a regime's perspective or from the other side is you can still disagree with, let's say, drag in school and not be and not hate trans folks or gay folks, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a dilemma there where you're clumped in. Let's say, okay, here's an example. Like, you know, if you voted for Trump, you're a Nazi. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. Maybe you agreed with nine out of 10 things that Trump did, but disagreed with some of his tweets or what he said at Charlottesville and stuff like that is or you may have all these issues that Trump kind of supported but not like Trump. It's it's much more complex than and this than, this plays yeah. into the lack of toleration or tolerance of nuance in conversations and that's my where my fear is coming from is that I don't think a lot of people think in nuance and that um, there's a shutdown and like in even saying, you know, I supported some of Trump's policies or whatever. Well, that automatically with a lot of people, they attack you automatically just for any sort of support for him or, or, you know what I mean? And they don't want to get mired in the nuance of the, of the issue or whatever given issue that you supported him on it's an allegiance thing. Like there's no time in in a lot of people's minds for discussion. You either in, you're either with us or without, you know, against us. And my fear is that with the gay community or, or I hate the word community, the LGBT issues going on in the trans is that it's going to force people kind of to take a side or on this, on the issue that they might not, know anything about or they might not have the nuance about or it's going to kind of solidify division and so this is where with the race shit going on my fear about that was that they're creating they could be creating the racism that they say they're fighting do you know what i mean by simply bringing it up all the time or or saying that there's a a racial division is in fact can lead people to become more racist through various means, the media, 
images that they see of violence, you know, you know, so this is kind of where I was thinking of where I was going with that. And we'll see how that plays out in the future. Yeah, no, it's going to be great. That's going to be a great conversation moving forward in this podcast and the other podcast. Because anytime there's a let, whether it's coming from the left, right, regime, or the people, that people are bringing it up or making an issue or deliberately trying to cause strife amongst the people, I'm automatically assuming that this is the regime. Now, there is organic racism there is organic hatred and there are tribal you know humans are tribal i think so it's not always the regime but i think the regime is smart enough and organized enough to exploit those differences as opposed to exploiting um our what's what's uh makes us alike in many ways because i don't see a lot of i you know again i don't see a lot hardly any of what the regime or the media is telling us is out there. So again, they're creating yeah. issues that may or may not exist. And, yeah. and I think, yeah. And as a, a strategy to, to kind of uh, take control of a country, that's been a, a, a strategy for years, just from an example of the U S in their foreign policies and how they op- how they engage um, other countries and disrupt them, how they uh, take control of it. They oftentimes would focus on ethnic differences um, and hype those up to create the kind of volatile environment in which they can then go into and, and, change or, or, you know, take control over And Ukraine relates to that because hold on a sec. There was this one moment where she talks about, let me get to it. Okay. So this is a passage from the war in Ukraine. Ukraine was not only plagued by the rise of the extreme right, but by endemic corruption, this reduced its national politics to a competition between factions of its post-Cold War oligarchy who vied for votes on an increasingly regional and ethnic basis. Yeah, so I think that's a a mode that the U.S. has done for, and probably other countries have done it too, when they're going into a a different country um, to take control of it. They get us divided they get the people attacking each other. And then from that, inv- that kind of stew that they've created, they can create, they can take control of it somehow. Yeah. I think, I think most, if not all empires, again, we're going to be talking about this in the future, uh, do that. It's you know, the classic divide and conquer strategy, not only internationally with other countries, but domestically as well. You know, you use those natural tribal fault lines whether it be based off race, whether it be based off class, whether it be uh, based off of uh, caste, um, whether it be based off of geographical location, uh, you name it, um, you know, power, 
does not like competition and does not like threats. And I think the biggest threat to power, just speaking to, let's say, the U.S. regime, is a united people. Mm-hmm. And that that is a threat that they do, and I think all regimes have taken seriously as a threat since the beginning. And as long as you can keep the people domestically at you know at arms with each other, you can exploit that as a regime. Mm-hmm. And either keep those two going after each other or help use one to get rid of the other. Mm-hmm. Kind of like um, how people think they're the NATO in the West is using the neo-Nazi factions right. within Ukraine as a way to combat Russia. Yeah. I mean, Ukraine and Russia has, has historical fault line as well. There's historical grievances there as well. Um, throughout Europe is fractured with historical fault lines that the United States could take advantage of or China or, or whoever. Um, so these are the topics we're going to talk about here and in the our other podcast, the Panopticon. And, you know, I currently, I take the, the, the worldview that, um, the power is a separate, kind of its own or you know organism almost its own object um, which spreads which destroys anything in its way which uses anything to maintain itself and then grow itself and part of that is the regimes that are in place are the ones whether it be a bureaucracy whether it be aristocracy oligarchy or monarchy were the ones who were able to harness that power to submit the rest of of the populace, the rest of the culture that we had talked about earlier. There's a rule in the ruled. Um, so I'm a proponent of, and a student more so, of the elite theory where, again, we'll talk about in a few weeks, there's always going to be the rule and there's always going to be the ruled. And how do you maneuver within that framework? Um, you know, it takes takes study takes conversation like this um so those are my parting thoughts we'll see if those change if my worldview changes as moving forward but we i look forward to the the future you might end up uh realizing you support the elite maybe you might end up a a staunch supporter supporter we'll see <laughs> yep Okay. All right.